It's Thursday, February 10th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Vortis, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined by Leo Haining, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Um, if California's mask mandate ends next week, however, that doesn't mean that local governments can't impose their own rules. Uh, Bill, the mask mandate still applies where we are in Santa Clara County. And where, where you are, Lee, in Santa Barbara, health officials are still considering a renewal of such mandates. Uh, Los Angeles is expected to keep its mandate. This is despite its mayor, Eric Garcetti, appearing maskless at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles during the NFC Championship game two weeks ago. And for the record, Governor Newsom, fresh off a recall election that was, in, that was inspired by the maskless incident at French Laundry in November 2020, also appeared maskless at SoFi Stadium. Uh, you wrote about this in your column, Bill, for California on Your Mind this week. Uh, do you think, uh, this goes to the overall question, do you think stadium officials and law enforcement will enforce the mandate uh, at SoFi Stadium during the Super Bowl? Um, in theory, they could. In theory, they should. Jonathan Lee, there is actually a law in the books in Los Angeles that if you're caught uh, without a mask, it's a thousand dollar fine. Um, but there's there's a stadium, SoFi Stadium, Los Angeles does not have the bandwidth, the manpower uh, to actually march people up and down the aisles and tell people to put on their masks. I think somebody who spends four to five figures on a ticket, I think the average Super Bowl ticket's about $10,000 this year, they're not going to um, you know, behave necessarily. They're going to want to not wear their masks. So I think it's one of those situations where the county will just turn its, uh, will just turn the, to turn the other cheek and just not pay attention to it and hope, hope the visual is not as stark as it was during the NFC Championship game, which just nobody seemed to be wearing a mask, including, as you mentioned, Mayor Garcetti, including Governor Newsom, even including San Francisco Mayor London Breed. Um, so I think the question that's moving forward, Lee, is kind of the public's wariness here. Um, Jonathan mentioned that here in Santa Clara County, our, our mandate is still in effect now. It might last a couple of weeks, who knows, maybe longer. Um, I think there are 11 counties in the Bay Area. We just stand out right now as the only one that's not doing it. So that kind of drives you nuts as a um, Santa Clara County resident. But the question, Lee, moving forward is, I think it's two things. Number one, uh, how much more the public will stand of mandates and regulations and so forth. But then secondly, Lee, it's going to be the question of how government operates in California, because uh, this has been the Rahm Emanuel School of Government here for the past couple of years under COVID. Emanuel, a former Bill Clinton chief of staff who famously said, never let a crisis go to waste. Um, they've taken full advantage of Sacramento of the crisis to you know have a state of emergency to do all sorts of things. So I'm kind of curious, Lee, as to what the government's going to be like when it's business as usual, or at least when the, when the mass mandates are gone. Yeah, Bill, uh, great points. The, the pandemic really has, um, has cast shadows on what we might call some fundamental problems that within California that government hasn't addressed, hasn't addressed for decades, uh, much less made any progress on, such as are the roads fixed? Uh, do we have enough water? Um, is housing getting built? Um, so none of those things are moving in the way that we would like them to. But the pandemic provides an umbrella 
for all politicians and particularly for those in the in the in the, in the ruling party here in California, the Democratic Party, which is, oh, you know, we're just trying to contain this. We're uh, we're in uh, we're in damage control now, but we've got your back. We're protecting you. Hey, we, you know, we we adopted all these regulations and restrictions for your personal safety and interests. So that has been the party line since February 2020 when COVID emerged. Um, and people, as you know, Bill, people are obviously fed up with it. Um, they're fed up with the fact that they made enormous personal sacrifices, financial sacrifices. <laughs> um, they have been inoculated once, two, three times. Um, and the virus is still here. Um, and those who have been sufficiently vaccinated for the most part um, aren't getting nearly as sick as we might expect them to be. But I think underneath the, uh, you know, under the radar, I think California, perhaps maybe less than other states, um, but certainly among the Southern states, they're essentially going for their own version of herd immunity. Mm-hmm. They've, take, they've taken off regulations. And, um, and, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the room was always, um, you know, their trade-offs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right now for, for, for a person, um, uh, a, a, a virus specialist friend of mine was telling me that right now for a person under the age of 65 without comorbidities, such as emphysema, cancer issues like that, um, if they are, if they are uh, double vaxxed and have a booster, um, that, the chance of um, of having a COVID related fatality is about one third of that, mm-hmm. if uh, due to just plain influenza. And um, <laughs> you know, there are years in which uh, influenza is incredibly severe, and uh, an awful lot of people get the flu, and quite a few die. Um, but we've never ever shut down economic activity, shut down schools, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, you know, Bill, just, uh, and then the, just the last point, um, what do we make of, uh, and this is a bit of a cheap shot, but it's one that he offered. Um, is this Bill Clinton too? When Bill Clinton said, I never inhaled, uh, and, Gar- and Eric Garcetti said, every time I had that mask off, I was holding my breath. Um, is Eric Garcetti, is he a marathon runner or one of those deep sea divers that can go down there without, without air tanks um, and, and, and search for pearls at the bottom of the ocean? Is he one of those guys? Well, or is, he, this Bill Clinton, is this Bill Clinton number two 30 years later? You know, it's funny how uh, people remember that line, uh, even though a lot of the Clinton presidency in the 90s are kind of forgettable now, it seems. Uh, but that line still sticks with people. And don't hold your breath for Garcetti to apologize. He's going to stick to that. But uh, I want to push further on this idea of um, if we are moving away from the idea of COVID crises and COVID emergencies and so forth, Lee, and we're back to kind of regularly scheduled programming in California government. I want to turn the attention to your column that came out today, California on your mind and homelessness. Uh, let me go into recovering speechwriter mode for a moment here and uh, project Governor Newsom soon to give a state of the state speech. And he'll talk about homelessness because he has made it a focus point of past state of the state addresses. But here's what he's going to do, Leah, just in, uh, just you know, gentleman's wager here. He's going to talk about it in monetary terms. He's going to talk about how much money that they're giving grants to Los Angeles and Sacramento, Sacramento under what's called uh, uh, Operation Turnkey, which is the government buying properties and local governments to house people. He'll talk about you know how many billions are being spent and so forth. But the question, Lee, is despite all this money being spent 
are we really seeing progress? In other words, the Beatles famously saying money can't buy you love. Can money solve the homeless problem in California? Uh, Bill, if, if, <laughs> if only Lennon was still here. Um, he, he, uh, great point. So it's the long and winding road is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, it's a long and winding road. And, and sadly, money, um, at least the way California spends money on homelessness, yeah, can't buy you out of homelessness. In fact, um, money may not be able to buy you love, um, but usually having more money doesn't make you less loved than you are. But it seems the more California spends on homelessness, the more homelessness we have. Uh, and it's uh, from an economic point of view, it's not at all surprising that that is the case. Um, you know, about a month ago, um, most of the, you know, of the few Republicans within the state Senate and state assembly, um, most of those folks signed a letter um, that went to Governor Newsom. And uh, that letter argued uh, that homelessness is a crisis level. And of course it is, it has been for, for years and years and probably at least two decades. And they asked the governor to call a, um, a, special, a special legislative session um, right. so that the many facets of homelessness can be addressed at the same time. And, uh, and they made some, uh, they made some uh, uh, really just heartbreaking, uh, they made some heartbreaking points based, just based on the facts, which is that, Bell, as you noted, Newsom's going to speak broadly and really take a victory lap about hey, I've spent $12.5 billion in the last couple of years on homelessness. And the Republican letter says, and homelessness has, has become worse by 7%. California is home to about 30% of the country's homeless, 12% of the general population. So it's about two and a half times more prevalent for homeless and nearly 50% of the unsheltered homeless um, in the country are living in California. Uh, and you see it playing out every day in San Francisco, uh, in Los Angeles, um, in, uh, in Santa Cruz, all along, uh, all along the California coast, um, you see this playing out. And it's, uh, it is devastating, it's not, in anyone's, it's not in anyone's best interest. And the real reason to get back to your point, Bill, about hey, money can't buy you out of homelessness is that the Republicans, I think, rightly have identified what the issue is. The issue is not simply taking hundreds of billions of dollars and building, quote, affordable housing, unquote, because, yes, we all need a roof over our heads, but that's not the major problem. The major problem among California's homeless is uh, mental health issues, physical health issues, and in particular, drug addiction, substance abuse issues. So, you know, you might build it, but these folks may not necessarily come. Um, so what the Republicans pointed out, and I think this was, um, and as I mentioned, this is in my column today, uh, shameless self-promotion, California on your mind, appearing today on the Hoover website. Um, they point out that most of California's policy on homelessness has been based on the idea that oh, we just need to build more housing, just need to build more low-income housing, which is built at a cost of somewhere around half a million dollars per apartment unit, just construction cost. You go anywhere else in the country, what does half a million dollars with, with, for nails and, and piping 
and irrigation and river material, what does that buy you anywhere else in the country? It buys you a, a beautiful single family home. Here in California, it, buy, it, it creates an 800 square foot studio apartment unit. So that's been, that's, that's been what we've been trying to do. The Republican letter points out that California is among the worst states in the country for psychiatric bed inpatient capacity and one the, among the worst in terms of a per capita availability of psychiatric trained mental health providers. Um, so they said, hey, this is what we need to do. We don't need to, you know, we don't need to talk more about Operation Turnkey and, and spending billions on turning on turning former hotels into apartment units, it really is about dealing with the mental illness and the drug abuse that has been out there every single day for us to see for years and years and years. Um, and thus far, the, the word from Newsom about having the special se session, pure silence, pure silence. So what we're on track for is spending, you know, tens of billions of more dollars and having the problem continue to worsen. And it's, um, and it doesn't have to be this way. I spoke with uh, Senator Pat Bates, um, who is down in Laguna Niguel, who was one of the folks who wrote this letter. Uh, the link to the letter is available in the column today. And she's a former uh, social worker. So she has a history of working with people who are homeless, who have mental health issues, uh, who have substance abuse issues. So here we have an expert within the state legislature and um, she doesn't have a voice. And I think she has some powerful, powerful ideas to be able to help us uh, help us address this problem. At least, not getting it's not going to get fixed by continuing to go down the roads that we've been doing for the last twenty years. Lee, one of the ways in which uh, the governor wanted to address the housing issue that you mentioned was through the introduction of uh, Senate Bill Nine or the passage of Senate Bill Nine. Attorney General uh, Rob Bonta has attempted to uh, enforce um, enforce this law recently. Um, which allows for single-family homes, allows for de developers to uh, convert single-family residences uh, into up to four uh, residential housing units. Uh, recently, the town of Woodside, in uh, nearby in San Mateo County, has attempted to put this on hold by claiming that builders would be encroaching on a mountain lion habitat. Uh, Bonta sued, Woodsiders backed down. Um, aside from these environmental concerns, is there an objection? Is an underlying? Is there an underlying objection to uh, multi? Uh, resident units in these Bay Area towns, such as Woodside, and what are the what are the overall what are the economic implications of SB nine? Yeah, so SB nine um, is a, is is one of those bills where you might call it um, you know much ado about nothing. So you know, in a nutshell, for years and years, a few California state legislators have been trying to get past legislation that would um, break the hold of pure single family homes within a lot of areas within California. And without going into that detail, there was enormous resistance. So, you know, the not in my backyard crowd saying, yeah, you know what, I'm living in Woodside, California, because it's a beautiful bucolic area and I've got a single family home and I've got a half acre lot and I've got privacy and I don't want a 10 story apartment building down at the end of the block. Um, so to try to get, you know, to, so to get passage of SB9 and previous variants have been out there that had failed, what legislative, they had to horse trade uh, to get SB9 passed. And part of that horse trading was to put all sorts of little provisos and modifications um, and exemptions within SB9. 
So Woodside tried one of these, which was to say, you know what? I think we I think we're going to be damaging the habitat for the California State Mountain Lion if we do this. Now, mind you, Woodside is a place where I was able to find some data where there are typically more homes with small pets and oftentimes several small pets. So, and I've got, you know, I've got a lap dog myself at my home, Tater Todd, who's 11 pounds. Um, it's interesting that all these folks suddenly became friends of the mountain when they've got Fifi and uh, they've got their, uh, they've got their multi-poos, you know, walking around the backyard. Um, but, you know, this is just the dysfunctionality of, of the state's housing approach. Uh, the people in Woodside who are by far and away members of the Democratic Party, I checked out, I checked out voter registration in all counties. Uh, San Mateo, which is where Woodside is, I believe has um, the third fewest or second fewest Republicans within that group. So you can't say, hey, this is a right left issue. The voters within Woodside um, are about as left as you can get, but they do not they do not want to quote solve California's housing problem on their back. And you know, Jonathan is probably is not going to make a big difference for them in terms of not being able to call themselves the best friend of the California State Mountain Line, because previously they had passed uh, they had put in a restriction that you know building a granny flat. Uh, was going to be no more than 800 square feet. So this is really, you know, so this is another way of saying, you know what, we're going to preserve the way of life that we have. Um, and we're a wealthy community and we're part of the Democratic Party. And again, this is the dysfunctionality. And, you know, you might I hate to use the old term limousine liberal, but, you know, this is up front and center limousine liberal. Yes, we're all for calling California a sanctuary state, and we're all against Trump and all things Trump, and we're all for California leading the way on um, on climate change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But hey, don't ask us to be part of the, to be part of the solution for building more housing. So the NIMBYism is the key part here, there, I think, Lee. It's a, the good people of Woodside just don't want duplexes and fourplexes and, you know, amidst their seven, $10 million homes. Uh, and NIMBYism is a common thread in a lot of California policy. To go back to homelessness, for example, San Francisco. Uh, people in San Francisco are very compassionate. They want to solve the homeless problem. So some city leader will say, well, let's build a treatment center, some sort of rehab center for homeless people. Good idea. And then they just pick out a neighborhood to put it in, and that neighborhood invariably goes crazy and blocks it. Uh, for years, they had a fight about putting a homeless center down in the Embarcadero, you know, down on the waterfront in San Francisco. It's NIMBYism, plain and simple. It even applies to taxation when you think about it, because how do we do taxes in California? We always just sock the super wealthy, you know, just <laughs> NIMBYism. Don't tax me. I'm from a middle class Californian. Tax the super wealthy people instead. No, that's exactly right. And because of all the exemptions within SB9, the uh, the Turnier Center of Real Estate Studies at Berkeley, which is um, you know um, a research center studying California housing, they've estimated that you know the number of new units that are going to come about from SB9 is really going to be you know maybe bigger than a drop in the bucket, but it's not going to be a ten drops in the bucket. Um, so SB9 is law. But it's not gonna. Is it is not going to be. Uh, it's not going to move the needle. Um, if it, and and so people, I think, are going to be those who are hoping that it was going to be part of the solution. They're going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. 
If it doesn't move the needle, uh, Bill, will it erode confidence among Democratic voters? Oh, SB9 and other and other uh, housing housing woes. Yeah, that's an awfully good question. Um, let's see how SB9 plays out in the next couple of years. So let's see where you build. Uh, but this is going to tie into other issues in California. For example, one idea with SB9 is to um, put as, is to put more housing you know, near cities. So, for example, if you want to work in San Francisco or Los Angeles, you can you can do more dense housing so people can commute in. Uh, this ties into a uh, local community problem we have in California. If you look at, for example, Barton, San Francisco, uh, it financially got clobbered by the pandemic. So now its finances are hurting, which is going to tie to modernizing its lines. I don't know if Los Angeles has the same problem, Lee. So housing is kind of a myriad uh, set of issues. It's not just it's not just building the unit, making the unit affordable. It's also tying it into a uh, lifestyle with Californians, which then, of course, ties to the greater issue of Californians leaving the state and working elsewhere since they've been the pandemic has sort of given them freedom to reign and uh, move to Texas and Utah and other places to do their business. Exactly right. You know, the options for remote working now are considerably higher than before the pandemic. And, you know, when you look at the density of people within places like San Francisco and West Los Angeles, um, I mean, there's limits on how many people we can, we're going to squeeze into those, to those spots. There's limits on how much additional infrastructure that we can put in there, water, sewer, Power, um, other types of uh, other types of public utilities. So California, at some level, is banging its head against the wall in terms of saying, "Oh gosh, look at all these people on the street. You know, well, let's put a roof over their head." All those folks here in San Francisco. Well, no, you're not going to be able to do that. And it really brings up the uh, the very challenging issue of, well. Uh, of those how many tens of thousands of substance abuse problem folks there are in San Francisco living on the streets. If you could get them into housing, well, how would you pick among them? Because you're not going to build enough new housing for all of them. And you're not going to build enough new housing for all the all the homeless who are living in who are in another who are in another town or city who are saying, hey, San Francisco's building 10,000 more units. <laughs> I, you know, let's go there. Um, it just makes no economic sense. Um, if, if, if the state government really wanted to move the needle on this, then they pursue economic development in the Central Valley and areas outside of San Diego, Silicon Valley, San Francisco, LA, San Diego, all the super expensive areas. You pursue economic development elsewhere. Um, and areas that are still economically blighted that might be more open uh, to having a larger population base than, um, than all the NIMBY folks uh, who are on the California coast. Jonathan Lee mentioned headbanging. I think that's the theme of this podcast for this week, because I think with that, we should take up the issue of single-payer care, which we talked about in the previous podcast. And Jonathan, something happened to single-payer care in the time since we did that last recording. Yeah, it's um, single payer is uh, dead. And the reality is, is that uh, AB 1400 probably wouldn't have been put into action anyway, because financing would have been an surmountable effort. Um, Bill and Lee, do you think healthcare will be addressed in the coming election year and uh, in Newsom's second term, his probable second term? Well, uh, so you said it's dead. It's dead in the classic Freddy Krueger horror movie sense and that it's dead, but it always comes back each year in another sequel, in another form. It gets killed again and it comes back again, gets killed again. Um, so the governor, getting back to his speech, he'll talk about universal care. He'll talk about the principles of single payer care, but 
Um, the question is, why did this go down the tubes? I want to get Lee's thoughts on as well. Um, what happened was um, the assemblyman, uh, Ash Cholera, who had proposed this, and it was really a concept, Lee. There was no detail to the plan. It's just a concept saying we want to do this. He introduced the bill, AB 1400, then he yanked it off the floor and said, we're not going to have a conversation about this. We're not going to put up a vote. All kinds of schools of thought is what happened here, Lee. Um, the assembly speaker, um, I'm told, uh, did a head count of uh, members, Democratic members in particular, there are 56 Democrats in legislature. You need only 41 to advance a bill like this. Um, but apparently the speaker did headcount and found that uh, the bill would have failed by double digits, uh, I'm told, which means he would have lost half of his caucus, Lee. So there was just no appetite for Democrats to vote on this, which ties into the second issue, the politics of single-payer care. Um, Democrats running in a lot of change districts in California this year uh, because of redistricting. They maybe see this as an albatross, but I think it comes down to one thing, Lee, and that anytime you talk about single parent California, um, it's the money. You know, show me the money, as Jerry Brown would always say. And conservative estimates, Lee, are somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion to make this fly in California. Keeping in mind the governor's budget he introduced uh, last month is $286 billion, Lee. And to those who say that California could bring that in on time, I'd point them to high-speed rail. There was a report that came out the other day with very little notice or fanfare. Uh, high-speed rail, which we once were told would be a $40 billion project in California, Lee, it's now at about $105 billion in climbing. So there's simply no way that California could do this for $400 billion. So once again, crash and burn. Yeah, but, but, uh, crash and burn. Absolutely. No, Bill, when you when you brought up uh, – you brought up uh, – um, uh, the California bullet train. And, um, and, you know, it's interesting because um, we've gone, uh, you know, we've gone to a, um, just a huge increase there. And, and you know, we we're, we're even if we built high, even if we built the bullet train now, I think what's even, I think what's even um, uh, being considered to be put on the tracks is not those 150 mile an hour trains, but rather what you might call a super diesel that goes about 80. Um, so put, taking this analogy to healthcare, yeah, it would probably end up, you know, if they're saying 400 billion, then you might as well just pencil in a trillion. And if you're thinking about, well, that will provide quality care for everyone. Well, you know, no, we're not gonna have the $150 million medical analogy to that train will have more like the super diesel. Mm -hmm. And Bill, in terms of politics, yeah, I think cholera thought this would be, uh, I mean, maybe his heart really is in this. Um, the nurses uh, union is really a very powerful um, supporter of this idea, very powerful uh, factor within the Democratic Party. They were very, very upset when cholera, when cholera pulled this. I'd say from a political perspective, um, you know, I don't know, I, I'm not in politics nearly as much as you are, Bill, but it seems like, you know, the first order business is always <laughs> count the votes. Right. If you don't have the votes, then don't put it out there because nobody wins if you put it out there and you don't have the votes. And now the nurse, the nurses using is extremely upset with all of this. They're upset with Newsom. They're upset with cholera. Uh, Gavin will talk the talk again, but um, I don't think his best interest is served by uh, by dipping a toe in this lake. And uh, you know, one issue we brought up, we talked about um, one or two times before, but I think it merits uh, bringing, uh, I think it merits pointing out again, 93% of Californians um, are covered and or are eligible. And if they don't have it, they're certainly eligible and they're choosing not to get it. Right. 
the the biggest population group that does not <clears throat> have coverage or that opportunity for these highly subsidized plans um, are undocumented folks living living here. And I think Newsom has other plans to try to bring them in through uh, through Medi-Cal. Um, and you know, Bill, I never understood why the nurses' union, and maybe it's because it's, it's the it's the union and not necessarily the nurses, were so gung ho about this. Because I took a look at nurses in the UK, where the National Health Service has been around there for you know, seventy plus years. Mm-hmm. Nurses are <laughs> even before COVID. Um, there's a huge shortage of nurses. They couldn't recruit. They weren't paying the kind of salaries that would attract nurses. Nurses were being lost to becoming uh, K through 12 public school teachers. When you look at the the empirical record uh, for nurses, it's not a happy one. So I just don't know what the nurses were thinking in terms of uh, in terms of being so excited about this. I think they would ultimately be extremely extremely disappointed, upset if this ever. Maybe their maybe their logic is a larger caseload in California means a need for more doctors, obviously more nurses, which gets into a very complicated fight over the nurse-patient ratio, which is a mess that Arnold Schwarzenegger got into as governor. But also keep in mind that the California Nurses Association, Lee, um, it's a very militant operation, uh, just like United Teachers Los Angeles, the Teachers Union of Los Angeles. They don't necessarily represent rank and file teacher sentiment or rank and file you know nursing sentiment. Um, you know UTLA, for example, you know famously a couple. Of years ago went out on strike leave and what did they want? They wanted a millionaire's tax. They wanted, you know, socialized medicine, a lot of stuff. I don't think the average teacher is really thinking about. So that's the divorce. So I think the uh, interesting thing coming out of this is going to be what and disappointed left is going to want. Uh, first of all, will there be primaries uh, now where you're going to see challenges? Uh, but I think that's one reason why they have voted the vote altogether, because a Democratic incumbent who would have voted against this would then have faced a primary challenge and the speaker raises that. But the idea of, you know, payback or quid pro quo or just, you know, kind of soothe ruffle feathers. What does the legislature and Governor Newsom do to placate uh, the nurses and, you know, those disappointed by the by the annual traditional death of single payer care in California? Yeah, uh, <laughs> the annual death of single payer care. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It goes in every year. Um, and the Democratic Party can, at least for the time being, be somewhat happy to know that, the nurses aren't going to go off and vote most likely for Republicans, at least if Democrats say, hey, all those Republicans are the second coming of Trump. You know, none of us want that. So that that certainly has worked for them so far. That was the that was really the winning ticket for them um, in the recall election where Newsom went from. Uh, a governor whose goose was pretty much cooked, who had a less than 50% approval rating to um, to then defeating all the recall candidates by a margin that I think may have even been wider than when he won in 2018 against John Cox. So Democrats will continue to play the Trump card as long as long as they can and divert and obfuscate. And um, Newsom will continue to say, yeah, Jim, single payer, what a great idea. But, you know, here in a state of 40, 40 million people and to get that done. And, you know, I've got some ideas to kind of get this to get those folks who aren't uh, currently covered uh, under the umbrella anyway. Uh, and then and then Republicans will be painted as the new Trumps. I think there's a there's a trap waiting for them when they say, why are we, why are we giving free health care? To people who are here illegally, that is what they're going to say. And then, oh, 
that guy's a Trump, that gal is a Trump. Look, didn't we tell you these Republicans are the are the second coming of Trump? Healthcare is a right. There's, you know, no one should have to, no one should have to try to live without healthcare, without quality healthcare. So it's just going to be business as usual. And I think the Republicans are probably going to have to, uh, I think they can, they'll probably have to try something a little bit different. I think they'll probably have to just pursue, hey, you know what, this isn't a problem that needs fixing. And if the governor wants to provide subsidies for those who are not living here legally, then let's have a big this open discussion about immigration and immigration reform and what resources we're broadly going to provide to people. But otherwise, you're right, it's just going to keep going the same, the same, same old, same old. Gentlemen, in, in other legislative news, uh, there have been a few new interesting bills introduced to the Assembly. Um, AB 878 would give school districts money for yellow buses or local transportation. Um, AB 871 uh, and SB 866 would limit vaccine exemptions for just medical reasons, not religious, and would allow children and teens to get vaccinated without parent approval. Uh, and AB 1709 would offer tax credits of $500 to Californians who would give blood at least four times a year. Um, if any of these expect to pass, do you think uh, they will receive uh, public backlash? Uh, Bill, we'll start with uh, you. So public black, uh, backlash, um, yeah, the uh, the second um, uh, set of bills you mentioned, uh, AB 871, SB 866. So uh, right now, uh, California, um, what the governor wants to do is he wants to change the uh, student vaccine program. He wants to lift the um, remove the limiting exemption right now. Uh, medical he wants to change it to medical reasons only. Uh, in other words, it, under uh, the Newsom plan, the legislative plan, there would be no exemptions for religious or personal belief, um, if you will. Uh, this would put it in line with current um, exemptions. Also, uh, teens could get vaccinated without parental uh, approval. So I think culturally this would be a flashpoint uh, because I th- I've, I've seen this before. The vax crowd has come down very heavy in Sacramento uh, several years ago when they went through the uh, the school vaccine uh, controversy pre-COVID, uh, a lot of angry protests in Sacramento, people mobilized for that. So I would look at that one as really the cultural flashpoint about uh, about the idea of taking away religious and personal belief exemptions for, for COVID vaccines. Yeah, I agree completely. This, this one will be a flashpoint. Um, and I, I don't have a lot of background, but I really would think about the unconstitutionality of allowing minors to be essentially choosing their own medical care. Right. And God help the provider um, if if one of these kids had a uh, had a reaction or had some type of um, some type of outcome from from vaccine. Um, so yeah, this this is not this 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 one is not going to go. I don't think. Um, the issue about school buses, you know, I don't know, Bill. I, I grew up in California. <laughs> I remember, you know, you always saw you always saw school buses. They were always around. I took the school bus, um, and despite California substantially increasing spending on schooling, uh, the school bus seems to have become dead. Uh, you know, Bill, you noted that only about one in ten California students take a bus to school. I was shocked um, to see that. I was shocked to see that number. Only one in ten. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, back in the day, it was like everybody, you know, everybody took the school bus if you, uh, you know, if you weren't able to walk. But now it's more like, you know, one of the parents, uh, one of the parents takes one of the that takes the kids almost uh, universally. So I personally like the idea of bringing back the school bus. Um, uh, I would like to put pressure on districts to make priority decisions and to act uh, with the idea that, uh, hey, budgets aren't infinite and 
Um, we need to figure out how we're going to spend money um, more yep. wisely um, because we continue to spend more on schools. And um, the, the college readiness of California K through 12 students, uh, their preparation for the job market, their ability to be qualified as being competent in math, competent in reading mm -hmm. and communication skills, competent in science were among the worst. Um, so th there's a broader issue here about, about, about providing education. But I do like the idea of bringing back the bus. And, um, and Bill, you know, did you, you were talking about um, AB 179, which was providing a tax credit for Californians to give blood at least four times a year. So from an economic standpoint, if there's not enough blood in the blood bank system, then, yeah, you've got to incentivize people to do this. Um, you might worry. Now, what I like about AB 1709 is a little bit clever. Um, it's not providing direct cash payments, but rather tax credits. So, you know, you always worry about who shows up at the blood drives to give blood. Well, it's, it's, it's those people who are typically unemployed who might have substance abuse problems. The blood that they give might be tainted. Um, so that so if you're going to pay people to give blood, the tax credit is a much better way to go than this the direct cash transfer, in my opinion. Well, you're killing my fun. I can't call it blood money. <laughs> <laughs> let's 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 loop back to the uh, the school bus issue for a second. So this is California in a nutshell, Lee. In this regard, this is why why I think this bill matters. Um, if the state gives school districts more money for buses. Uh, it's going to pull away money it gives to schools right now, districts for local transportation funds. So the school districts are going to cry foul if that money is taken away. So it's not like I think it's a you know zero-sum game here. You give money and take it back. Uh, the negotiations will be um, excruciating. But secondly, Lee, given given California's views on climate change, it's worth noting, by the way, we're all we're all having a conversation today. And it's about 80 degrees outside in California. This ain't the California February we used to know, folks. Um, but if you're going to put in a fleet of yellow buses in California, Lee, what kind of buses are we talking about? You're not going to go get buses from the 1950s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, the ones that we all grew up on. No, these are going to have to be just, you know, just, these are going to have to run on peanut oil or some sort of, you know, environmentally acceptable thing. They're going to have to be ergonomically correct. Uh, within the bus, there'll probably be all sorts of instruction, elaborate instructions to who sits where, so nobody is, nobody is um, profiled or nobody's feelings are hurt or anything like that. It's I don't think California is capable of necessarily put, putting together a yellow bus fleet. <laughs> you know, Bill, you, you brought back visions of uh, you know the late 1960s. I was in fifth grade, and I remember the I remember the the seat springs sticking up into uh, into my derriere, right. and I remember kids pulling the uh, I remember kids pulling the, the you know the hair of the other kid in the in the in the row ahead of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this would be difficult. Uh, and Bill, you know, interesting um, interesting data point, uh, and I'll probably do this for a future California on your mind column. Uh, when you talked about these aren't going to be those diesels, um, no, they won't be. If you're thinking about how much does an electric bus cost, well, within our favorite city of San Francisco, and this is these data are probably a year or two old, um, about two million dollars, <laughs> about two million dollars for an electric bus. Um, you know, hopefully provides educational videos while those kids are in there. I mean, like, how do you spend two million dollars? on a bus. Um, maybe you do have to have about 10,000 pounds of Elon Musk batteries in there. Um, but uh, but you're right. I probably misspoke when I said, yeah, bring back the yellow bus because yeah, it's not it's not going to be the yellow bus. It's going to be the 21st century $2 million bus. 
Precisely. Gentlemen, if we could um, circle back uh, to the beginning of this podcast about the about the Super Bowl and the issue of homelessness. Uh, Bill, you write about um, other themes in your um, about the Super Bowl in your California on your mind column. Uh, the ticket prices are prohibitive. Uh, there are less seats for the so-called plebeians uh, uh, than were at L.A. Memorial Coliseum, uh, the site of the first Super Bowl in 1967. Mm-hmm. Um and at SoFi Stadium, there are more exclusive box seats for high society viewing. Uh, this is against a backdrop, as, as we discussed earlier, pervasive home homelessness in the city of Los Angeles. Right. And it was reported that city officials will, re- will relocate homeless uh, that are encamped uh, near the near Sof- SoFi Stadium. The optics of this don't look that great for California politicians, do they, Bill? They don't. Uh, in defense of said California politicians, almost every city in America does something, some version of this when the Super Bowl comes to their town. They sanitize their town as best as they can. San Francisco had the Super Bowl, I think, back in 2016. Yeah, San Francisco went on kind of a quick cleanup with homeless people. Uh, other towns in America have done this as well. Um, one thing about this game uh, on Sunday, it's Super Bowl uh, 56. It's also kind of climate change bowl one in this regard. Uh, Los Angeles is going to be about 85 degrees on Sunday, perhaps. Uh, if they played this game in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, which is you know next to the campus University of Southern California, that is a stadium that goes back to the 1920s. It's where the first Super Bowl was played, by the way, in 1967. That stadium is an outdoor stadium. People would have sunstroke sitting out there in 85 degree weather in February in California. So an interesting sign of our times. But uh, yeah, there's a lot about the Super Bowl that kind of rankles. And I've also wrote a piece of Washington Post on this. It's, it's the idea, Lee, of just California. We're about law laws, but we're not about enforcement, uh, if you will. And this is kind of the COVID riddle moving forward. Uh, We're kind of moving into an honor system now where Lee and Bill and Jonathan can walk into a restaurant in California without a mask, well, elsewhere besides Santa Clara County. And you know, maybe you're going to be asked to show proof of vaccination, but most restaurants are probably not going to card you. They're going to welcome the business. And so we're all on the honor system to be vaccinated and move forward. Um, the Super Bowl in this regard just kind of drive me nuts in that regard, because what's the use of putting these laws on the book in Los Angeles and elsewhere if people are going to flaunt them? It's equivalent if we if we hopped in a car and drove up or down the I-5. If we drove from San Francisco to Los Angeles and at one point jumped over on the superhighway just to get down there faster. Well, I don't know how you guys drive but I, I try to take risk whenever I can. Very few people in California stay in the right-hand lane on the I-5 and go 65 or 70, just do the limit. They go along and it's an open space. And this is human nature in a nutshell. You start looking around, you don't see cops. You start thinking, what time am I going to get there? And you start speeding up. And before you know it, you're going 75, 80 miles an hour. If some idiot goes by you at 100 miles an hour, you go up to 90 and you're living with risk because you're thinking a cop's not going to find me. Even though you know in California, you get slammed for $500 for a speeding ticket. And kind of the COVID rules are the same way now where, you know, you get away without wearing a mask if you just think you're not going to get caught doing it. And it brings out the worst in human nature. I think I've mentioned this maybe on the previous podcast. You go through an airport in America, a major airport where they have those nice stations set up where you can charge your phones, your laptops. Well, people can take down their masks if they're eating or drinking. So what you notice, I noticed this last time I flew, it's a fellow sitting across me at the charging station, and he must have sat there for two hours with one cup of coffee. Never drinking it, just keeping it next to his hand. So in case the COVID police came along, and there were no COVID police, by the way, but in case somebody came along, he would just say, hey, I'm drinking my drink. So (laughs) I I think this is the challenge for California moving forward, just these COVID restrictions, which really aren't punitive at the end of the day. They really just do kind of, you know, test the best, worst of human nature. Yes, the 
I mean, there's a real irony here in the sense that, I mean, a lot of people hurt very badly um, in the previous two years with shutdowns. And what California is still asking people is, um, you know, hey, we have these laws and, um, and politicians are just are going to they're going to keep their fingers crossed that this works out well. Um, Bill, as you noted, having uh, Garcetti um, and uh, and Newsom and London Breed all photographed many times <laughs> without a mask on is uh, is a problem. It's you know, it's OK for me, the elites not to have a mask, but, yeah. you know, you people out there who are bringing us um, are bringing us the chicken wings and the beers in the stadium. Well, you better have a mask on while you're serving us. Um, I suspect that these I suspect that de facto, if not explicit, that that uh, that this will probably go by the wayside within the next couple of months, particularly assuming that the caseload continues to drop. Um, but again, it just really highlights, um, you know, the two-tier aspect of life in California. There's a very, very small group who are extremely wealthy, who can spend $10,000 on a ticket for the Super Bowl. And then there are those people who are parking the cars and who are cleaning up after the game is over um, and who are, who are going to be wearing masks or they won't be, or they won't be allowed. Um, so, 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 which so, section you sit? Which section you're sitting in on Sunday, Lee? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm. Uh, I'm. Uh, Bill, interesting. You asked my uh, my youngest is having a couple of his buddies over, and they've told me they <laughs> they've told me that you know, okay, Dad, put on your mask, uh, make some nachos, and make some chicken wings, uh, and so you know, hopefully, I'll see a little bit of the game, um, but. It is interesting just how much this, the world of sports has just morphed into one that is uh, that is for the rich and famous when it comes to Super Bowl, NBA Finals, uh, the World Series, the World Cup. Um, the idea that uh, the people in the middle of the income distribution are going to be are going to be there in person. That's no longer really an option. Anymore. So I have been to one Super Bowl, uh, and that was in San Diego in 1998. It was a great game. It was the Packers and the uh, Broncos, two teams that have good traveling uh, entourages. And I learned a lesson in economics, Lee. The face value of a Super Bowl ticket back then was 150 bucks. Uh, I had a, a friend who worked for the mayor of San Diego, so he said I could have as many tickets as I want. Uh, I asked for only two, and I should have bought a lot more in retrospect because walking toward the stadium, people were offering me $2,000 a ticket. So Lee, you're, you have a PhD in economics. I don't, but I think there was I think the, the market. Oh, there's something about marketplace dynamics that day. But then again, this yeah. is California. We have very strict scalping laws in California. So that's why I would not have sold the ticket. I would have lived in fear of getting nailed by a cop. But again, this is the California we live in. We're maybe willing to accept risk because you don't think there's punishment. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't think those online brokerage services like StubHub, for example, were around back in 1998. Um, if they had been, Bill, you had uh, what us economists call an arbitrage opportunity. Yes. Buy low, guarantee, sell high. And, um, you know, that uh, you might be today sitting on a mountain of, uh, of Tesla stock. Uh, if, you, if, you had, if you went ahead and made that payday back in 1998. By the way, to get in the Super Bowl, you need to show proof of vaccination. You also have to produce an ID. It might be more difficult to get into the game than it is to cast a ballot in California. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, um, 
where does yes yes another podcast but uh again the uh the dysfunctionality of 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 the political life we live in um you can vote but can't get in and watch the super bowl lastly gentlemen the the last time a california team won the super bowl was the 49ers uh beating the san diego chargers in 19 january 1995 so that would have been 27 years ago will a california team win the rams uh representing california this year win the super bowl this year bill what's the do you know what the current i'm gonna google right now what the current spread is I want to say it's the Rams by about a field goal, but I, I haven't checked the betting lines lately. I'm more interested in prop bets in the Super Bowl than I'm the uh, the head-to-head matchup. I, I'm pulling for the Bengals here because they're kind of the underdog. Um, they um, have been kind of fortunate to get here. It's kind of the better feel-good story. I hate to be negative here, but just the Rams bailed on Los Angeles years and years ago. It's one of the reasons why I have kind of a funky fan base. Um, I don't like to see that kind of behavior rewarded, if you will. So uh, I'll go with the Bengals. Yeah, Bill, you're a traditionalist. I hear you. I hear you. Um, you know, just from the, you know, taking my heart out of it, um, is I think it'll be an interesting game. You've got the Bengals with a really young quarterback who is now looking like he is, um, you know, he's God's gift out there, Joe Burrow. And he's got a receiver named Jamar Chase. Um, and, uh, you know, we're all hoping for a really close game as we've seen just some beauties the last couple of weeks um, in the playoffs. Uh, games going down to the last minute overtime. Um, I love the fact that um, we have kind of a, uh, a working class hero, Cooper Cup on the Rams, um, a guy who is never the biggest, never the tallest, uh, by far never the fastest, but who's become perhaps best wide receiver, best wide receiver in the NFL, certainly one of the top three or four wide receivers in the NFL. Um, so I think we'll see a lot of throwing, potentially a lot of scoring, um, which is just the way football has evolved uh, these days. So, and again, since I'm going to have a house with a few uh, with a few rowdy teenagers in it, I'm hoping for the close game <laughs> to keep their, to keep their attention. Uh, and um Whoever wins, uh, let's, I'm, I'm hoping it'll be close. I, hopefully it's not going to be over by halftime. Well put. This has been very interesting and timely analysis, gentlemen. Thank you for your time. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. If you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is also on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen CA. And Leo Hanian is on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore O'Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report where you can access the latest scholarship and, an, and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mervoitis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.